I'm Jason from Smoking and Drinking in Space, a sci-fi podcast from a couple guys who think they know sci-fi. And I'm Rob from Smoking and Drinking in Capes, a superhero podcast from a couple guys who wish they had powers. And we're part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. And you can find other cool, awesome, geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. And welcome to Play Comics, where once again we are here looking at a video game based on a comic property and how well it sticks to that source material. Today, I am here with Kiefer, who it has been a long day, and I promise you guys right now it's going to be a wonderful guest voice to listen to. Kiefer, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the compliment at the top. I'm really excited for this. Um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself before we get into talking about a character I'm pretty sure that they've heard about. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm Kiefer. I am a podcaster. I am a video essayist once in a while. Uh, I do a podcast called Select and Start, which is a podcast about meaningful and memorable video games where I usually have a guest on every episode to talk about a game that means a lot to them. And we discuss its personal effect on the individual and we also discuss it in a broader sense of its impact on the gaming industry or lack thereof and its current availability in the marketplace whether it's completely unpurchasable in the primary market or a game that's super widely available so we talk about a range of games from uh, star wars games like knights of the old republic and battlefront 2 to zelda games like breath of the wild and a link to the past and metal gear games like metal gear solid 3 so wide range of games that we talk about and a wide range of guests from all different levels of experience it's not just industry experts and that's why it's so fun to do the show and that kind of thing is why i was really excited you jumped on when i said i needed some spider-man guests because spider-man just seems to hit with so many people so what is it that made you want to jump in and talk about the second spider-man movie tie-in game Specifically, the second Spider-Man movie tie-in game, it's just because when I was growing up and that game came out, um, I'm 26 years old, turning 27 this year, so I probably skew a bit younger than some of the guests on your show. Um, the Spider-Man 2 movie came out when I was turning eight years old, and that was just like the height of the Spider-Man phenomenon. I grew up watching the 94 animated series on, it was reruns by that point, but it connected with me a lot because the aesthetics of Spider-Man is just so appealing to a kid. Uh, I actually loved the weird Power Rangers suit that uh, Defoe's Green Goblin wears in the first Raimi Spider-Man movie. And the second Spider-Man movie just uh, obviously is a masterpiece, probably the best superhero film in the uh, the medium. And when the second game came out and my sibling got it for the uh, Nintendo GameCube, it was just a huge revelation. I obviously had had experience with Spider-Man games before. Uh, this first Spider-Man movie game in particular, and the uh, PlayStation 1 Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 games, uh, second one being in Electro. So I already had an idea of what a Spider-Man game was generally like, but this is the first one that genuinely felt like a game changer. And I'm excited to talk about all that and why it 
is so specific to me and my relationship with Spider-Man. So, yeah. What is it that really speaks to you with Spider-Man as a character? Uh, I think this is the point that's been beaten to death by basically any person who says Spider-Man is their favorite uh, superhero. But And, you know, I'm going to bring up the obvious sentiments, but Spider-Man's broad appeal is that he is the most relatable superhero to, you know, the, the everyday person. He doesn't have traditional weaknesses. His weaknesses is his personal life and his relationships. Uh, alternatively, being Spider-Man is his weakness. He is slavishly devoted to the idea of embedding he is the he is slavishly devoted to the idea that has been like embedded to him by his uncle ben that with great power there must also come great responsibility and having a superhero that whose power set isn't uh something that is just invincibility or invulnerability of flight and he enhances his own power set by his own means in most traditional stories those parts are what stick out to me it's a very um for the people, superhero, the, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, you know, it's all there in the text. That's a lot of what really drew me to Spider-Man growing up. Um, I'm a little older than you, so I was seeing the 94 animated series as it was coming out. And the, oh, mm. that thing is still just so good. And I might try to convince some people to watch it on another podcast because we need to do that. But just everything about spider-man to me is it's the relatability it's the fact that his greatest enemy is his own sense of self-worth and just everything like that i mean like you are you said it's gonna be said every single time but that's only because it's true in this case right no it is the, the part of Spider-Man that's so appealing to him is how this is a soap opera format. Not only was his storylines conducive to the, the, the comic book medium because uh, every issue he would have a personal problem and that would tie into what was going on in his superhero arc and him having to balance that responsibility that he has socially versus the obligation that he has to fulfill as a protector of the city. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's great. And the format is so good and that's why it's always been conducive to the various cartoons that have come out over the years the 94 one uh, my favorite one being the spectacular spider-man series that came out in, i think 07 08 those stories just hit the hardest for me just because it, it's it's not just that it's not just a love for peter uh spider-man but a love for peter parker that makes these stories so good well, the fact that this movie resonates so much with you, do you think it would have done that if you were 12, 13, 14 when it came out instead? Um, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, I'm trying to think of where my mindset was. And the truth is, um, I mean, I think when I was like 12, 13, 14, I was definitely more of a Batman guy because you become more enamored with the idea of... Um, not just the character, but the world and the atmosphere. Spider-Man's very much grounded in New York and Miles Rogues Gallery is super-powered people with different various mutations. The gothic uh, idea of Gotham City and the, the creepiness and the eeriness also spoke to me as a teenager just because you, you, you feel like you're getting more mature sensibilities and you try and suss that out and seek that out in different stories. So I, it's hard to say. Uh, I think I remember being pretty 
not over the Raimi movies when I was in high school, but I was just excited to see what the web movies were going to do. And um, oh, I was a little bit underwhelmed just because, uh, you know, Garfield being a good Spider-Man and everything, the nothing really gelled together. So I think that really, I think having that experience in my teenage years, seeing how the web movies played out and trying to figure out where um, the disconnect was only pushed me further into the Raimi stuff and into my love of Raimi's general movies like Evil Dead, where I did sort of get that dark, eerie, atmospheric stuff. So I don't know. I think in a weird way, uh, I think I probably would have loved it more if I did come into it and just looked at Raimi's wider filmography when I had more uh, understanding of the internet. I've seen a lot of people lately saying that this is possibly the greatest superhero movie ever made. You included. Um, what is it do you think about this one that leads to so many people sharing that opinion? I think it is... Uh, it's artistry. There's a, there's a craft to it, right? Uh, Raimi is... Uh, an alter director in a different way than we see it in the more uh, the classy sense of it. But just in how distinct his style is and how equipped he is for the world of Spider-Man. Uh, and not just in the visual sensibilities where his stories look and feel like a comic book, but how vibrant and alive that he's able to make that comic book story feel. So, and I think the soap opera effect is the part that he gets the best about Spider-Man. So making these absurd scenarios feel real and even when these performances are a little heightened like uh franco being all over the place you have these incredible presence uh with uh aunt may and uh, alfred molina's doc ock so it i don't know it's like everything is cranked to 10 in a very uh loving way where it's not trying to constantly keep your attention but try and constantly show you different facets of a superhero's life and I think the, the, the clear structure of the story where Spider-Man is losing part of himself and he has to make that choice to go back and do the thing that obviously hurts him on a social level um, and try his best to pursue a romance with someone where there is that kind of bittersweet ending uh, uh, to their whole um, story and to, I don't know, it, it, it's... It's weird to see a movie be so bright and vibrant, but also so dark at the same time. And I think that there is just something unique about all that. And I think that's why these, these movies stick with people. These movies, I feel like, are also at a very interesting crossroads of practical versus CGI effects. And I think they hit mm. on that just perfectly with what they chose to use cgi for what they chose to go practical for and just like the green screen work in this one especially for doc ox extra arms i think is amazing but like they weren't sitting there super relied on cgi but they knew they were going up against things that were doing all practical effects still and so you've got to make it look good. You can't make it look like PS1 polygons when you're trying to make somebody's face show up CGI style. Yeah, I mean, this was, I think, too, was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. 
And you can definitely see the money on the screen um, because of how pioneering a lot of the effects are making Spider-Man feel like a character and not just this really stiff object that moves around. Uh, and then also that marriage of it with uh, the practical effects, like you pointed out the Doc Ock arm and how that directing, because uh, if there's somebody who knows how to stretch the value of a dollar, it's Raimi. That first Evil Dead movie was made in a shoestring of a shoestring budget uh, with his entire crew getting the flu in the woods just trying to film uh, anything and, and get a movie out of it. And him knowing how to stretch the value of the dollar throughout his career makes it, 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 it it's smart and talking about the doc ock arm the thing that always sticks with me is that shot in the uh the, the horror film scene with the uh, the hospital where they are trying to remove the uh, uh arms from his spine and all of these power tools are in there and he's just killing people left and right and it's dark and he's using his little evil dead tricks with like the camera following the arm so it looks like a everything else is moving around it I don't know. It, it's that's another thing that just makes it so good that the Raimi's uh, economic sensibilities uh, meeting the maximalism of a comic book story. I'm really excited that Raimi's come back into Marvel and done some of the MCU movies. Such a beautiful choice, and like I wish he would have gotten some Spider-Man. Although you know, Doctor Strange is practically a Spider-Man movie in some ways. But it's just so nice to have him back. Right. With uh, the Raimi movies, uh, the thing I like the most is what he is willing to do to put a character through the ringer. In the uh, Evil Dead movies, is very obvious because he'll just do anything to torture Bruce Campbell, make him do uh, Looney Tunes slapstick on himself, and just get so much mileage out of... Uh, him hurting himself i forgot how much of army of darkness which is like the most budget he'd gotten up to that point to make an evil dead movie and half of that movie is still just bruce campbell beating up bruce campbell and he sort of takes that into a different place with uh peter parker where peter parker is obviously less of a bravado person than um ash williams but he still is the kind of person that's just taking out like the world on spider-man where it basically feels like he was brought into the world the wrong way and everything is going against him in some way or another and that's what makes him so well equipped for that story is you know he understands that peter parker is a tortured cursed figure who can never really be truly happy because of this uh burden of having to be a hero and i think that's what makes a lot of multiverse of madness work with dr strange is that he's bringing that ash williams uh let's torture a guy uh who is also arrogant and has his own set in his way idea of how to handle things and it all kind of falls apart in front of him I think that's why that works so well, and I can understand why he's wanted to make a Doctor Strange film for the past two decades, and he finally got to do it. I can't think of hardly anybody I would have rather have had done it. No, yeah, I 100% agree. I like the first Doctor Strange movie, but I really like what Raimi brought to the character of Doctor Strange in the second one. The other thing to really consider with this one is previous superhero sequel movies before the Spider-Man series here with Tobey Maguire hadn't always been the best of things. You had, I mean, Batman Returns was good, but then Batman and Robin, I love it for the campiness. A lot of people hate it for that. The Superman sequels just kind of fell off a cliff. So when this came out, nobody was really knew what to expect with a Spider-Man sequel. 
No, yeah. And I, I definitely see your point. Um, the Donner version of Superman 2 is very good, but I can definitely see how um, the, the, the standard uh, release version of 2 and the, the subsequent 3 and 4 kind of fall off a cliff, like you said. I think X2, X-Men United, had already been out by this point, right? Yeah, X-Men United was 2003. Okay, so... There was definitely some precedent about uh, sequels. I mean, I guess in the the cultural opinion, the the Donner cut wasn't a ma- thing that people knew about in at the time, and uh, Batman Returns was still pretty controversial and wouldn't be reappraised until later. So it was really only X Men Two at this point that would generally be accepted without much caveat. Uh, and with Spider Man One being such a huge, huge thing, uh, there was definitely a lot of pressure to make the second one bigger. And the way that it all comes together, especially knowing the uh, the making of everything with uh, uh, Maguire very nearly not coming back uh, because he suffered an injury and it was used to uh, renegotiate his contract so he got more money out of it. And Raimi almost nearly not bring him back because if he, hey, if you're hurt, we don't. There's no movie worth making that hurt somebody, which is a very sweet sentiment and also the opposite of what he does to Peter Parker and all of his other central characters. No, I... I it's a miracle movie in, in a lot of ways. Also a little bit groundbreaking in the fact that you can hear Tobey Maguire talk about how he was signed on for three movies right at the beginning. That wasn't really a worry back then when people weren't trying to make giant cinematic universes all over the place and hoping the first one catches on and having plans for 10 years down the road. Right. I can still remember uh, when I was 12 years old seeing Iron Man 1 for the first time uh, and seeing Nick Fury, a character that I knew because of the Spider-Man animated series, show up at the very end to talk about uh, an Avengers initiative and just like seeing like the gears turn in my brain and like, oh yeah, they can do that. These stories don't have to be so self-contained. And that's something that I've always wanted to see because of the 94 Spider-Man series, especially in those later seasons, being crossovers with... uh, the other Fox TV shows and uh, the Punisher and anybody else that they could get their hands on that week. And that just the, the world opening up in a way that was uh, hopeful. But I do miss the self-contained stories told in uh, the, the Raimi movies where it doesn't feel like there's too, too much going on. And all of these stories can feel personal without having to ask the questions comic book readers have had to ask themselves <laughs> every single time a conflict happens with a person who isn't an Avenger, you know? I mean, let's be fair, though. Who hasn't been an Avenger yet in some form or another? Right. I mean, even Spider-Man himself has been an Avenger, but the the appeal of Spider-Man is like these smaller, intimate stories, and the, uh, the, 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 the scrutinizing of these superhero stories with, like, well, why didn't, uh, Iron Man show up and solve all the problems? And that is kind of a funny thing now having watched uh spider-man homecoming 10 15 years after 15 years after spider-man 1 came out and iron man does show up to solve all of spider-man's problems and you know i like i like these uh new spider-man movies i like i like them i, I really like homecoming and i uh, really enjoyed far from home but it is less distracting just making these stories about peter parker and his friends and his aunt may and him trying to figure out his life without having uh, a living uh, force guiding him through his problems. 
Well, we're gonna go try to give Peter a hug because he probably needs it while I drop some promos for a few other shows. Adventures in Aurelia, a D&D podcast with new players to learn alongside. Adventures in Aurelia, a D&D podcast where everyone has a good time. Adventures in Aurelia, a D&D podcast that is casual and inclusive. Adventures in Aurelia, a D&D podcast with lots of lore and creativity. Adventures in Aurelia, a podcast where five friends sit around the table and record themselves playing Dungeons and Dragons. Find us at adventuresinarelia.com. That's E-R-Y-L-I-A. This is a vast podcast in which I, Paul Chomo, talk about the golden age of piracy and answer questions like, how did pirates actually talk? Is that pirate video game any good? What even is a poop deck? Do pirate TV shows and movies get anything right? Spoiler alert, not really, but the truth is far more interesting. The Avast podcast is about pirate history, pop culture, trivia, comedy, and maybe even a little sprinkling of true crime once in a while. Subscribe to Avast wherever you get podcasts, and remember, you have the buckles, darn it. Don't be afraid to swash them. Those are some great shows to check out, but first let's finish up with this one. I can see that smile. You didn't know I did that live, did you? (laughs) So, Kiefer, when this game came out, you were, from the sounds of it, approximately three years old. And you're going to make me feel like I was 80. Mm -hmm. Sure. Happy to do it. Something like that. Everything makes me feel old today. It's not your fault. But what we have here is uh, the Spider-Man 2 game for PS2, GameCube, Xbox, DS, PSP, and technically N-Gage, but you know, that's N-Gage, who cares? And also PC, but I think everything was on PC back in the day. Depending on which game you got, it could have been worked on by some combination of Treyarch, Vicarious Visions or Digital Eclipse. We're mostly going to be focusing on the regular console ones here because the handheld ones, meh. That's just how handheld versions of things tend to go. Right. I mean, the flagship is the one that I'm happy to talk about, the one that was released on the main uh, Xbox GameCube, PlayStation 2 consoles. And I mean, this is part of reason i love this game so much is like every big blockbuster movie uh, had a video game tie-in that could be released on every living console at the time you saw with the harry anything from harry potter even the scooby-doo movies i remember having video game tie-ins things that were pretty sweaty to have a video game tie-in and i think that's something that really stood out to me is how distinctly good the console version of spider-man 2 was at the time compared to those other things and the level of polish on them and that's, that's why I'm really excited to talk about all this, because it does feel like a game changer in more than one way. 2004 was a really exciting time in video games, because you had these movie tie-in games, and when they were good, they were actually pretty good. And they weren't really relying on the fact that they could go back in and patch the game later, because that just doesn't really happen until the next generation. So you've got to put the game out right the first time rip those days 
uh yeah there's definitely a lot more uh leeway uh with what people can do with a video game and uh the damage control that has to be done if something isn't launched properly normally uh a lot of companies get away with it but i just recently did the battlefront 2 uh star wars episode with my uh, good friend caroline and we were just talking about the uh, disastrous launch of uh the the dice uh 2017 star wars battlefront 2 game and how that basically ruined that perception of that game even though it is now significantly improved with the updates that took out the microtransactions and the pay to win formula to it but yeah no i do miss the uh halcyon days of getting the full game and the disc when you buy it one of the appeals of having these movie tie-in games is getting to play the movie and you do you do get a lot of that here you do also get some other storyline things added on because you can't just have a whole movie where you fight Doc Ock over and over and over. That would be really boring. Right, yeah. The creative changes and the liberties that this uh, video game adaptation had to make in order to be a video game is part of what makes it so great. And it's a part of it that is understanding your medium. A lot of people are just making a video game to put one out so it can be part of the merchandising of uh, a film. Like everything was Spider-Man 2 branded in 2004. You got binders and play sets and uh, coloring books and uh, web shooters with silly string in them. And having a competent product be put out that isn't just uh, here is a video game and here are some levels that you play that look like scenes from the movie. It's let's design a video game with the knowledge of a video game in mind and let's change the script a little bit so it can be not just the, 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 the basic beats of the film and add some stuff onto there. There's actually a, a consideration of the history of Spider-Man video games in this uh, video game because the Sega CD version of Spider-Man versus the Kingpin on uh, from the 90s uh, had a Mysterio's Funhouse level and one of the secondary villains in this game is Mysterio and there is a Funhouse segment of the game that you actually have to go and visit so the uh, the flagship console version does have the, the it's it's just a smart consideration of Spider-Man's past in the video game and bringing that into the modern setting into a video game tie-in no less that is just very smart and it's great that people who know the history of video games and the history of spider-man worked on a video game like this it's so rare for that to happen we did get lucky in this one in that treyarch had worked on the first spider-man ps1 game already vicarious visions had worked on that one and the sequel inter electro plus spider-man mysterio's menace so you've got plenty of experience making spider-man games here working on this one Plus, you just had a really good movie to base everything on. So it's really a giant winning combination you have for a base. It is. I mean, you think that there are uh, movies that are a slam dunk that just don't quite uh, make it in the video game adaptation world. And then there are things that are, you know, kind of strange to make video games out of. And that really work. I think of the Peter Jackson King Kong video game that came out the year after this one. That is actually a really good uh, mix of different gameplay styles, whether it's from the King Kong perspective or from a human perspective. And it gets that balance right. But this one, uh, Spider-Man 2, does something very com complex, 
but keeping it in the simple place of let's make the player feel like Spider-Man. And I know that has been a, a buzzword, like making the player feel like why, but I think this is definitely a case of uh, this really happening in the first time as we are getting used to the, uh, the language of the 3D space in video games. Um, you know, we have an open world setting, which is really taking off in uh, the early 2000s after the release of Grand Theft Auto 3 in 2001, which again, it's about knowing the trends about video games and how you bring that into making a video game adaptation and make these this game good. But it's also, what do we do to make this a, a Spider-Man game proper? So it's a physics engine that you're playing around in. And Spider-Man is uh, a, practically a ragdoll that you control. You see him go limp when he is knocked over. Uh, you are controlling the momentum of Spider-Man as he swings. He cannot just swing uh, and uh, directly upward. He has to attach himself to something on the wall like you would if you're really Spider-Man. And as you build up momentum, you go faster and faster. And if you hit an object, you collide with it in a clumsy way, just like Spider-Man would if he didn't land that. Uh, so this this game is just a really good... Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it was fun for its time, but it now worked, serves as a really good historical object as um, the changing of how we understand Spider-Man games to be, the expectation of what they have to be in the future, because we have many, many, many open-world Spider-Man games after this, one to varying degrees of good. And it's just a really good example of uh, a comic book character being brought to life in, in an interactive setting for the... Not for the first time, but probably the best, in my opinion, uh, version of it at up to this point in 2004. The web swinging is something I really want to focus on here because for possibly the first time, you've got a Spider-Man that has to have some conceivable actual thing to connect the webbing to to swing. It seems like every game before this, there were just girders going, floating across the sky, and you could swing wherever you wanted. But all of a sudden here in Spider-Man 2, you've got to have a building up there. You can't just swing around in the middle of a park. Right, exactly. So Spider-Man 2, the video game, realizes the potential of Spider-Man in the video game medium by not just bringing the character and his full power sets into an interactive space. It's not just a simple power fantasy. It's making the video game as much about Spider-Man's immediate surroundings as it is about him, which is very true to the essence of the character because everything about Peter Parker is about his surroundings. Uh, as a character, that's what he's defined by. Uh, his relationships keep him on the path of righteousness, and they're also the source of his greatest anxieties. So as Spider-Man, he is physically bonded to New York. Uh, that this is a city that he loves and the way he's able to succeed as a hero is because of this very specific layout of this city you can't have and we've the re we've read stories of spider-man going to the florida everglades to fight the lizard before you know he, his power set isn't uniquely equipped to deal with uh non-walkable cities with high buildings he he swings around these tall buildings this is the first spider-man spider game to make it uh an actual fully mechanic a full mechanic to have him physically connect with an object so he can swing around. Uh, and th that's the interactivity with Spider-Man's personal relationship to the world he's connected to. He has to make contact with the building if he wants to swing around. He's not just swinging to clear gaps. He's gaining momentum. He has an awareness of his surroundings. And if you have that awareness and you do have an understanding of the layout of the city, you can really pull off really complicated maneuvers and really get through the city very quickly.
I get frustrated going back to things like this where you just have your invisible wall of you can't go there yet. I've realized that's mm -hmm. a me problem. I just wish that they would, you know, have something there to have a visual for you can't go over that way. I also realize that's a lot harder to do in a Spider-Man game because he can basically go wherever he wants anyway. No, yeah, that was something when revisiting this game, I definitely understood as a limitation and it would be inconceivable to imagine now. Um, a lot of the 2018 Spider-Man game, which I love, uh, doesn't want to limit you in any way. There's a lot of, uh, and there's a lot of things that bring me back to that. It does feel like a game that's playing with like the gutters uh, blocked off instead of the way this game is pretty unproofless and how it wants you to pull off maneuvers to navigate the city. Um, and the other thing is like it doesn't want to limit you in terms of where you can go. But Spider-Man, the 2004 uh, movie game, also is too limiting and it doesn't give you enough uh, visual indicators to let you know that you can't access a place yet. So it does feel like a limitation of video games at the time and just a limitation of video game development sensibilities. There wasn't quite as universal language for game development then as there is now to uh, limit that. So it is restrictive in a very weird way. Much like people talk about the Spider-Man 2 movie being one of the best superhero movies to come out for a while, this is still talked about as being one of the best Spider-Man games to ever come out. And it's not just because it's historically important. It's because it's just a good game. Like We can sit here and spout off a ton of movies that are historically important and did important things first or brought into the mainstream, but they're just movies that don't hold up. This one... As much as any PS2, Xbox era game can hold up, this one does. I mean, I say that as somebody who grew up, that is my generation of games. So I can go back to these no problem and play them. But I can also understand why somebody growing up today, you know, if, if you started on a PS4, going back to this is going to be pretty hard. No, for sure. And there is sort of a built-in difficulty that would not be as a commonplace in a video game of now. Uh, I appreciate all of the uh, accessibility settings that video games offer now in terms of making the act of playing a game easier. Uh, and I definitely, uh, I'm, I'm not diminishing those um, strides being made when I'm saying this, but video games just were way harder back then because people who were making video games, even the good ones at the time, weren't interested in teaching you uh, how to play their game or kind of assume that you'd kind of know what's up when you're playing a video game. Like this is, they, nobody assumes this is your first video game ever. Um, and that's something that stands out like a 2018 Spider-Man video game where it's very forgiving of you when you mess up. If you just run into a wall, Spider-Man's gonna just default to running up the building. Uh, so you don't lose the illusion of the, the fantasy of being Spider-Man. Whereas if you hit a wall here or if you run into uh, any kind of object in a funky way, you are just immediately going to be dead in your tracks losing that momentum. Uh, and obviously there's just like the jank of a early 2000s video game all over this for better and for worse. Uh, but no, yeah, that is something that is sticking out is um, I, I do miss this era of video games, but I also do... Uh, not misses era video games for a different reason in terms of 
welcoming and onboarding a, a player, uh, but I do also just admire how committed this game is to frustrating its player, which would kind of be unimaginable now for a mainstream video game of a character that's important to the uh, uh, American mainstream. Oh, can you imagine if they put out a Spider-Man game now that was like Souls level hard? No, you couldn't. Um, this is a game that expects you to uh, be okay with the fact that you have to work hard to be as good as Spider-Man. Uh, whereas uh, the, the newer Spider-Man games really want you to just feel uh, as powerful as Peter Parker is at his point when you are where he is in that story. And I think that that is kind of what makes this game so important to me is how it makes you connect with Peter Parker and Spider-Man more because of how difficult it all is. Um, like on a gameplay level, Spider-Man games don't really reckon with the problems of being Spider-Man. You're only seeing him in the action. Um, speaking to that indulgent power fantasy earlier, you get to reap all the power and only on a narrative level does Spider-Man sow the responsibility. But this game does a really good job uh, meeting power and responsibility uh, in the actual interactive space with you having to learn how to be Spider-Man and pull off these, uh, build momentum and travel faster uh, as you get better at swinging. And one video minigame in this game specifically does reckon with the power and responsibility thing in a very funny but also cruel way which is the the pizza mini game where you have to deliver pizza like he does in the movie um he you know you're actually interacting with uh, the fantasy of spider-man uh intersecting with the harsh reality of peter parker uh and this is probably the most difficult and stressful part of the game more than actually fighting bad guys is just making these deliveries and not ruining the pizza by being too acrobatic uh, while the music is just getting louder and faster and it's playing a really uh, horribly compressed version of Finiculi Finicula and it's stressing you out even more and it's horrible and it's cruel and it's hilarious but it cuts to the core of what it's really like to be Spider-Man. It's, it's, it's grueling work. Uh, so that's something that I really like about this game that other Spider-Man games don't tend to do. Everybody I've ever talked to about this has always come back to the pizza minigame and... I don't know if it's because everybody just really likes pizza or they think that the idea of Spider-Man delivering pizzas is hilarious or the fact that this is a PS2 game. There's only so many little side mission variants you can have. No, I agree. It's the latter. It's the latter. Um, there's not a lot of side missions in the game. It's really just uh, stopping uh, petty criminals from stealing things or saving people from falling off of a building and saving uh, balloons for little children. So the, the pizza game really stands out more among uh, what limited side content there is. Although I admit it would be cool if I could find a car that had just been stolen and punch it to make the car thieves get out. <laughs> Yeah, you just punch a car until it stops. And I, th I think it's very funny that uh, the newer game still tries to do this, uh, but it's more uh, Spider-Man just uh, jumping in front of it and using the webs to make them hit the brakes. I, I, I do just miss like, hey, just punch, punch, get out of the car and fight me and shoot me with your gun. 
classic Spider-Man. We, we need to have more of that coming around. So overall, looking at this game, what do you think it really gets right about Spider-Man as a character? I think that that's kind of what I've been getting at during our entire conversation, just because um, what really means a lot to me is um, not just how this game deals with the Spider-Man stuff of Spider-Man, but the Peter Parker stuff of being Spider-Man. So the pizza minigame being uh, a brief uh, window into the life of Peter Parker and actually having to make money, but it's also kind of a really good interactive space for you to understand how stressful it is to do a job. Uh, and it's a lot more stressful for Peter to do the Peter stuff than it is for him to do the Spider-Man stuff. And uh, obviously talking about the uh, the marriage of this game on an interactive level with having to really make you earn the ability to be Spider-Man with you getting used to the controls and getting used to the environment and getting used to um, the layout of the city. That stuff feels very authentic to the uh, experience of being Peter Parker. And that that's what is appealing to me about this game. Everything about this game just oozes Spider-Man and it matches up with the movie it's based on so well which of course then they both match up with Spider-Man from the comics so well depending on which era you're reading and it I don't know I need to save some of this for my other questions that I always ask but what do you think this game if anything gets wrong about Spider-Man Uh, that's um, a great question. The thing that uh, I love so much about Spider-Man is the melodrama, the uh, the feeling of uh, the his social life mattering just as much as uh, Doc Ock intending to uh, blow up New York with a with a new sun kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's something that this game. Uh, doesn't really do well and i don't think it's necessarily because uh i mean it's not it's not the kind of game you go to for the story you go to the movie to enjoy the story of spider-man 2 but uh you're doing yourself a disservice if this is your only uh experience of the spider-man 2 storyline and that's because uh this is uh they do a good job bringing back dunst and mcguire and uh melina as the 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 leads and the voices for their characters that play in the movie but it doesn't seem like Maguire and Dunst are at all interested in putting any amount of effort into their uh, performance. Uh, you know, Toby was paid $17 million to come back for Spider-Man 2. I don't really know how his uh, contract was or how that tied into uh, Spider-Man 2 game, but it does seem like they just went with the first take of him just literally reading the script and uh, putting that, just put that into the game without any revisions or notes or edits. Which is fine. It's funny. It's charming, honestly. Uh, they could have just like paid a professional actor to do a sound alike and get a more passionate performance. But the the, the downside to that is uh, there's no feeling of the melodrama that goes with a, a Spider-Man story in the game itself. The kind of funny part about that to me, though, is that a lot of this movie is kind of about Peter and him realizing how kind of screwed up his life is because of all the choices he's been forced to make so sounding like a wet sock 
probably works a little bit better for the Peter Spider-Man aspect of it. There's no excuse for Kirsten Dunst with Barry Jane. That was just bad. No, yeah. I mean, I think that Dunst is kind of incredible as Mary Jane in the movies in a way that people do not give her enough credit for. And I do think that Maguire is actually really good as Spider-Man in these movies. I remember being part of the generation that was conflicted on Maguire uh, while it was happening because he did bring a, an awkwardness to the character that wasn't very endearing to, the, to a hero. But... I think that that stuff is great. Uh, it is definitely a good take on the character. I'm glad that we have uh, other performers who've gotten to do it. I do think Holland is a great balance, but I do think McGuire gets a very specific nerdiness and uh, awkwardness to Peter. That's very true to the, to the Lee Ditko stories of the 60s. Uh, and that's what uh, Raimi's obviously going for in those movies. But I don't blame people for remembering that performance is bad because they probably spent more time playing the video game where he is absolutely phoning it in and kind of sounding dead. Uh, so if that's probably the reason people think that the McGuire performance is bad, I, I, that that completely tracks for me. I'm with you. Kirsten Dunst, though, in the movies, great choice. Kirsten Dunst as a voice actress, um, there's probably a reason why we haven't seen her do much else, if anything. <laughs> Agreed. If you had somebody who wanted to get into Spider-Man as a character, ignoring the fact that you could show them the movie that this is based on, would you give them this game as a bit of a primer course? This was the question I was most excited for, and it's also the one I have, like, the least to say. Uh, just because, like, it, it's a great question, and... I kind of arrived at, as much as I love this game and as excited as I was to talk about it, no. I do think that a big part of... I do think this game does a really good job uh, with the relationship with Spider-Man on like the world around him. I do think that that stuff is extremely good. I do think that that is probably more appealing for a video gamer going in and trying to understand Spider-Man. It definitely enhanced my experience and my relationship with uh, Peter Parker and Spider-Man doing all this at a formative young age but i do think that the 2018 spider-man is probably a lot more compelling as a narrative and understanding peter parker as a character and not just the central tenets of spider-man and i do think that with uh not just the fact that dunst is kind of completely phoning it in a big part of the spider-man story is his relationship with mary jane and this is not really a central component of that you see more of black cat than you do of mary jane in this game so I do think that if I'm introducing somebody to Spider-Man, I'd probably pick something else. But if I am talking about the appeal of Spider-Man, I do also want to uphold this game as a great example of doing that. But I do think you need to understand him in a more traditional narrative to appreciate what this game is doing uh, with it on an interactive level. Yeah, this one is a really interesting point because it has things that are so good to show people but then it has things that are definitely at best uh, second semester freshman year level spider-man stuff like you can't jump straight into dealing with this kind of emotional relationships that he has with everybody without really understanding what happens between him and uncle ben without the mary jane 
Harry Osborn love triangle that they have going in the first Spider-Man movie. Like, you've got to have some background here. This isn't a horrible place to start, I don't think, but it's not where I would want to. No, it's way better of a starting point than, say, Web of Shadows that is kind of trying to do the I'm sure you know everything about Spider-Man. Now here is Luke Cage, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And here is him fighting every single one of his villains in uh, a, a Venom variant. That that That's a bit probably more alienating. I do think this game is a lot more simple, but I do think it is almost too simple in how it's already brushing past the, uh, like you said, the 101 stuff and just sort of throwing you in the middle of a Spider-Man story, which is the consequence of this being the uh, Spider-Man 2. Um, I do recommend this game for sure as a kind of camp. Uh, the dated elements are very charming to it, and the clunky in-engine cutscenes are really goofy and funny. Uh, the graphics of the PlayStation 2 were not at the point where they could simulate the cin cinematic simulate the cinematic yet, especially as something as dynamic as Raimi's direction or Bill Pope's cinematography in those movies. So, um, uh, Bill Pope, for those who don't know, is also the cinematographer for the Matrix films and the Edgar Wright movies. So there's a lot more uh dynamic camera movement and you're not going to get that in a uh those these cutscenes where it's just kind of like here is a shot of the polygonal face of mary jane and here's the polygonal face of uh toby mcguire and let's all remember too when you see black cat this movie came out in 2004 and if that doesn't give you all the explanation you need just hearing that it will when you see black cat yes I'll leave it at that. I'm not equipped to talk about uh, all of that, but it is it is definitely a video game in 2004. And when where movies were in 2004 uh, and where video games were in 2004, it, it's a completely different world. It feels like this video games especially were in a completely different century when it came to depictions of women. I mean, in a lot of ways, they were because it was I don't even want to think about how many years ago now. Right. It's going on 19 years ago now, but I just think about like back then, so many sexualized depictions of characters and no way of really detailing any of them. So what body parts are we going to choose to accentuate for uh, Xenia on a top from GoldenEye 007 and Lara Croft Tomb Raider and Black Cat Spider-Man 2004? Just leave it all right there. And finally, on a completely different mm -hmm. note, who's your favorite Muppet? Uh, Gonzo. Why Gonzo? That is a great question. I got to think about that for a second, but it just felt right. That's a Gonzo uh, oh, answer. You know what it is, actually? I, yeah, no. I love Gonzo because Muppet Christmas Carol is my favorite Muppet thing, and he is the Charles Dickens role in that, and his relationship with Rizzo is very endearing and I think that's the X factor of what makes that the definitive adaptation of the Dickensian story and also just uh, one of the best Muppet stories it's a it's a dynamic that you don't really get from the Muppets and it's very cute and very sweet that is a really good depiction of A Christmas Carol I hate the disrespect that Mickey's Christmas Carol gets because it is also very good and needs to be in the same conversation it is Muppets is better but not as much as everybody wants to make it sound like. I'd say it's harder to make a bad Christmas Carol adaptation than it is to make a 
than it is to make a good one just because like the the source material is already so compelling speaking of things that are really compelling though it has been great talking to you about all of this if people want to hear more from you where else can they find you around the internet thank you i really appreciate being on here i hope i didn't talk too much uh, but if you did enjoy what you heard me say, I am on Twitter at Danny Vegito. That's D-A-N-N-Y-V-E-G-I-T-O. And you can also listen to me on my podcast, Select and Start, where I talk about meaningful and memorable video games. Uh, that is available basically wherever you can stream podcasts. I would highly recommend you check that out if you enjoy the way I talk about video games. And if you don't like the way I talk about video games, uh, I'm sorry, but I really appreciate you giving me a chance today at least. Uh, and you can also find me on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash Kiefer's Corner. That's K-E-I-F-E-R-S-C-O-R-N-E-R. I have a video about an adaptation of Cowboy Bebop and the Netflix series and how it fails to really match the beauty of the original, not just in um, narrative, but also just because it fundamentally misunderstands the appeal of the anime and why animation was so important to the way it was told. So if you like how I talk about adaptations, look forward, uh, look for me on YouTube. And as always, we will have links to all that stuff down in the show notes because clicking links is so much easier than trying to remember how to spell things. Yeah, thank you for that. And as always, if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to playcomics.com where, yes, it's nicely redesigned. I think it's really pretty and I hope you do too. But also, you know, you can head on over to Twitter at Play Comics Cast while Twitter still exists. Um, there's a Mastodon link in the website. You should check that out. I should get on there more often, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's why I have a website so I can have this stuff future proof. And you can just go to playcomics.com for whatever the linkage may be. These episodes are written as much as they can be written, produced and edited by me. Art is also made by me because I'm a bit of a control freak, but if not, I might talk to somebody like Carl Antonovitz, who you'll hear about more in a second, but Carl just makes really good art, and if I could give away creative control for the art for the podcast, it might be Carl who gets it, because Carl's art is good, and I like it. Which has nothing to do with the fact that Carl is among the people who are patrons of the site, along with Ono Lit Class and Dan McMahon. People who just give me money because they like what I do with the show and they think it deserves that. And, you know, running a podcast costs money, unfortunately. Although it is cheaper than therapy and cheaper than going to the flea market every weekend. If you want to hear a bunch of other wonderfully geeky shows, you can head on over to the Get a Geek Network, where you can hear shows such as better podcasting where you can learn to make your podcast better or capes on the couch where you can learn that even superheroes have bad days or legends of shield where you can learn that sometimes chris just likes to be stupid and that's fun among three other people who are a lot smarter than him when talking about marvel things if you like the music that we're rudely talking on top of head on over to soundcloud.com slash best dash day to check out best days music most of all just grab a game grab a stack of comics and go find yourself a new favorite character.